There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped in Michael We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, 27-year veteran of the NYPD. Folks, as you all know, the Lori Vallow trial has begun. It's one of the strangest cases that you could possibly follow. And there's so many twists and turns. The timeline goes back to like 2014. Uh, we're not going to go through all those details we're going to discuss other aspects of this case. And uh, for that tonight, I'm going to have uh, attorney Melanie Little and uh, retired NYPD detective Phil Grimaldi. But I'm going to bring them in later on because I want to discuss a little bit more about the case. And um, Lori Vallow Daybell goes to trial on her children's mysterious deaths. Uh, she's being tried in connection with the deaths of her two of her children and her husband's previous wife. Prosecutors said she was driven by her doomsday religious beliefs. Now, this is strange. Doomsday religious beliefs. We've seen this before, of course, with like David Koresh. And in a certain way with Charles Manson years ago, even though it wasn't religion, it was sort of like a cult, which it, so is this. This is very much like a cult. Uh, so Lori Valadebel, again, there's so many names in this, it gets you confused too. Uh, her, her first name was Vallow, and then she married Chad Daybell, and they're still using Lori Vallow Daybell. So she's on trial in Idaho this week in the deaths of three people, including two of her children, in a case, of course, that has drawn widespread attention for what prosecutors have described as her doomsday religious beliefs and for the questionable circumstances surrounding the deaths of other members of her family. It seems that when people get near her, they get dead you know, in very mysterious ways. Uh, Ms. Vallow, who is uh, age 49, her husband, Chad Daybell, they've been indicted by a grand jury, but the two will be tried separately. This is according to the New York Times. Both have pleaded not guilty to charges of murder, conspiracy, and grand theft in connection with the deaths of Ms. Vallow Daybell's children, Tylee Ryan, 16, and Joshua or J.J. Vallow, who was seven at the time. The remains of Miss Vallow Daybell's children were found buried on Mr. Daybell's property in 2020. Mr. Daybell has also been charged with first-degree murder in the death of his former wife, Tammy Daybell. Mr. Daybell and Miss Vallow Daybell each face one count of conspiracy to commit first-degree murder in Tammy Daybell's death. Just two weeks before the start of the trial, a judge granted a request from Ms. Vallow Daybell's lawyers to take the death penalty off the table. However, Mr. Daybell still faces the death penalty if convicted. The case is already the subject of a lifetime movie called Doomsday Mom and the Lori Vallow story in a Netflix documentary series, Sins of Our Mother. Here's what we know. That's what it's called. Um, and, and what did ha what happened to the children? Tylee Ryan and J.J. Vallow reported missing in November 2019. 
by JJ's grandparents who had grown suspicious when they were unable to reach him by phone. Officers with the Rexburg Police Department in Idaho attempted to conduct a welfare check and later executed search warrants at the apartment complex where Ms. Vallow Daybell and her husband lived. The authorities said the couple seemed unconcerned with the children's whereabouts. In February 2020, Ms. Vallow Daybell was arrested in Hawaii on a warrant issued by the authorities in Idaho after they said she had not cooperated with the effort to find the missing children. In June 2020, investigators found human remains buried on Mr. Daybell's property in Idaho that were later identified as belonging to his wife's missing children. He was arrested and charged with concealing evidence. Both Mr. Daybell and Ms. Vallow Daybell have been in custody since they were arrested. At Ms. Vallow Daybell's trial, Detective Ray Hormosillo of the Rexburg Police Department described photographs of the children's remain, remains. Excuse me. J.J. was wearing red pajamas, his bruised arms bound with duct tape. Tylee's remains had been burned and packed into a bucket that was buried elsewhere on Mr. Daybell's property. So, guys, you're really getting uh, sort of the, the bird's eye view of, of how horrific this case is. And uh, it gets worse. It gets worse. Right now, joining me, I'm going to first introduce uh, attorney Melanie Little, who's um, – She's becoming slowly becoming a YouTube star, and here we, that's why we have her on the show. Melanie, welcome to the show today. Oh, oh hi, thanks, Bill. This is quite the assignment today, I have to tell you. <laughs> it is it, it is a hell of a case, and you know something. Whenever you have a case with this sort of religious zealotry, almost a mind control type thing, and then of course there's. Uh, behavior, mental illness. I think mental illness. I think there's got to be mental illness in this on the part of Lori Vallow and perhaps also on the part of Chad Daybell. I mean, how do you how does you have behavior like this unless you're not hitting on all cylinders? You got me, but I did fall down the, the Lori rabbit hole today, as I'm going to call it, because I've been covering so many other cases. I hadn't really had a chance to deep dive into this one. And this one makes Murdoch look tame. I mean... The, the family tree on this is, is insane, but I don't know if we're going to get into all that. And I'm sure that a lot of your viewers know a lot more about this case and its intricacies than we do. But this should be an interesting conversation because it's a crazy 100%. Case. And with us also tonight is retired NYPD detective and straight out of Brooklyn, Phil Grimaldi. Welcome to the show tonight, Phil. I hope everybody is strapped in because this is going to be one hell of a show. There's uh, so much to cover here. It's a tremendous case. If you thought the Murdoch case was uh, intricate, interesting, and expanding, this case uh, really does blow it away. It's it's just unbelievable. I spent about four hours doing some research today because I really wasn't up on this case. But uh, Bill went over some of the timeline. I just wanted to give a quick rundown of some of the stuff that took place Prior to uh, 2019, back in 2015, Lori read Chad Daybell's Standing in Holy Places series of books. She reportedly became obsessed with them. In 2016, the Vallow family had moved back to Arizona. In the fall of 2018, Lori and her friend Melanie Gibb had uh, int were uh, introduced to, they attended preparing a people event where Lori was introduced to Chad 
for the first time. And according to Gibb, by the end of the weekend, Chari to uh, Chad told Lori that the two had been married in seven previous lifetimes and the, soon be uh, the, the two soon began private communication. Now, uh, we're going to fast forward a little bit into uh, 2018 uh, is when they meet. 2019, March, uh, Lori disappears for 58 days. At that point, her husband, Charles Vallow, files for divorce from Lori. He claims in the uh, divorce decree that uh, she threatened to murder him if he got in the way of preparations for Christ's second coming. Uh, which she believed to be in July of 2020. So as you could see, there was definitely an obsession with this church of firstborn, a fundamentalist, a fundamentalist Mormon group, uh, basically uh, also known as a doomsday group. Um, in July 2019, July 11, 2019, uh, Charles Vallow was shot dead in Chandler, Arizona. Uh, the vehicle was registered to uh, Lori's brother. Um he claims self-defense in this case. Uh, the PD closes the case. Days later, uh, Lori learns that the insurance policy, which was in excess of a million dollars, million dollars had been changed to his sister. Um, in 2019, that's when the two kids go missing. Basically, they're last seen uh, early September at uh, the uh, uh, the park in uh, – oh, I had it written down here. There's just so much with this case. Yeah, Yellowstone Park. And then uh, – that was where uh, Ty, Ty Lee was, uh, was last seen. And then um, later do during that month, uh, JJ was last seen at school. Um, again, uh, there starts to become some suspicion about the disappearance with the school. She goes to the school uh, September 24th and informs the school that uh, she's going to homeschool and that JJ is not going to be attending anymore. Uh, she also, on October 1st, 2019, rents a storage unit. The children's stuff is later found in that uh, storage locker. Uh, October 2nd, 2019, Brandon Bordeaux is Lori's nephew-in-law. He's the target of a failed drive-by shooting. Uh, the Jeep, that's the Jeep I was talking about, was registered to Charles Vallow, the previous husband. As you can see, there's a web here of uh, all different things going on. October 9th, 2019, Tammy Daybell calls police. Uh, that a masked gunman attempted to shoot her in her garage. She believes it was a paintball gun. And uh, 10 days later, on the 19th of October, she's found dead, originally believed to be of natural causes. However, in February 11th, based on the investigation of the two missing children, an uh, investigation is opened and it's now believed to be a homicide. Uh, late October, Alex Cox, Lori's brother-in-law, is seen on videotape numerous times at the storage locker. So again, I don't want to go too far into the timeline. And the timeline that I read was about four pages. That's just a little bit of the stuff that was going on based on what Bill had explained earlier in the show. You know, Melanie, I want to talk about a little bit about, first of all, all of this stuff is happening, perhaps in different uh, jurisdictions. And one of the big problems, the police don't communicate with each other. So they may not know all of the nefarious things that are going on in different locations. For, for example, I mean, I found it outrageous that the wife of Chad Daybell, they didn't do an autopsy. And she was a young, vibrant woman in good shape. She was a runner. And natural causes, what, she was in her 40s, I think. I mean, I think to me, that's suspicious, yeah. isn't it? Suspicious when we know, you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty, right? I mean, what it was crazy to me was that she wasn't cremated. So they were able to exhume her body later 
and determined that it was a homicide. And now they're both being charged with this homicide as well. Um, you know, this case goes from Arizona to Idaho to Hawaii to uh, it's, it's pretty much it's crazy. The, the amount of crimes committed in different states. So I, I hear what you're saying about jurisdictions. I mean, when they were finally arrested and it, it was in Hawaii and then they were extradited back to Ohio, uh, to Idaho. So they just um, left a wake pretty much wherever they went, these two. You know, I also wanted to ask you, Melanie, um, Lori Vallow is being tried with uh, the murders of her children, yet mm -hmm. she most likely, and again, I'm not, uh, I don't have expertise in this, in this case, but she most likely is not the person who killed her children. However, she's being charged with that based on, and again, I'm going to have you explain it since you are an attorney. Mm -hmm. uh, based on con conspiracy to commit murder. So a conspiracy to commit murder is when two people make an agreement to commit a murder and only one of them makes an overt act towards that murder. They all can be charged with the murder. So if there's even a group of people, there could be five people that conspire to murder someone. If one person makes an overt act and they all conspired, they can all be charged with the murder. And that's how she's being charged in this case. And it also seemed like, you know, they had some, they had a good criminal IQ. I'll put it that way. They knew how to hide things from the police. Apparently, at one point, Lori Vallow had a, it was reported had sixteen cell phones. So she did. Yeah, so she knew, you know, I guess to alternate the cell phones, not to bring the cell phone to certain locations when they were committing nefarious acts. So that would be, you know, I wish we had Mike Geary on consciousness of guilt, or what we also yeah. call premeditation. Phil, your and thoughts? Yeah, I mean, listen, 16 cell phones, it sounds like uh, she was going to use the cell phones in nefarious ways, as you said. And perhaps if she had to go on the run, uh, track, use one cell phone for a couple of days, let's say, or make certain calls and have other backup cell phones to, uh, you know, to be able to communicate. Um, you know, there was even uh, talk from, I believe, a step brother or sister uh, had contacted uh, uh, the, the girl, uh, Ty, was it Ty Lee? Yeah, uh, Tylee, and um, uh, there was some communication around the time that she was missing where she sent back uh, too busy, uh, can't really talk right now, and little hearts and stuff like that, and even Venmoed some money. So again, she was playing it up pretty good, it appears, uh, trying to cover their tracks. Uh, when they were first accused of uh, not having custody of the kids or knowing the whereabouts of the kids, you know, they were on a, a honeymoon just two weeks after Chad Daybell's wife was uh, was found dead. And, uh, you know, they had gotten married. So, again, the eye of suspicion was definitely on them right from the beginning. Uh, a good investigation took place. Pandora's box was opened, obviously, when the children went missing. These crazy religious beliefs that they had in their head. Uh, you know, the things that they did, uh, just really, really uh, shocking and amazing. I'm going to play some of uh, Colby Ryan's uh, testimony in court. You're just going to hear the audio. Lori Vallow Daybell's only surviving son takes the stand in her murder trial. And wait till you hear what the two talked about on a recorded jailhouse call. Welcome to Sidebar, presented by Law and Crime. I'm Jesse Weber. A big witness took the stand in the Lori Vallow Daybell trial. 
Now, a little recap here. The 49-year-old doomsday mother is currently on trial in Idaho and faces life in prison on first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder charges in connection with the deaths of her children, 7-year-old J.J. Vallow and 16-year-old Tylee Ryan. Their bodies found on the property of her current husband, Chad Daybell. He actually faces similar charges. He's going to be tried separately at a later date. But Lori Vallow Daybell's troubles don't end there because she is also charged with conspiracy to commit murder in the death of Chad's now deceased wife, Tammy Daybell. You see, originally, Tammy's death was thought to be from natural causes, that she died in her sleep. But when the kids' bodies were found and her body was exhumed, authorities realized something else was going on. And that is when prosecutors explained at the beginning of this trial that Tammy Daybell actually died from asphyxiation at the hands of another. Now, the theory put forward by prosecutors is that Lori Vallow Daybell did this for several reasons. One, to be with Chad, who she was having an affair with. Two, for financial gain. In other words, obtain the proceeds of Social Security and life insurance benefits when these people died. And three, that she and Chad felt justified through their extreme religious beliefs, that there were these dark spirits. There was good versus evil. The kids were possessed. Stuff like that. Okay. So that brings me now to a major witness who took the stand, as I mentioned, Colby Ryan, the 27-year-old surviving son of Lori Vallow Daybell from a previous relationship. He is someone who has spoken out about this case before in interviews. He even wrote a book. By all accounts, he had a very, very close relationship with his sister, Tylee, as well as JJ. Okay, so let's get into some of these significant moments from his testimony. And he explained how he was contacted by the police in November 2019 about his missing siblings. He said when he called his mom to find out what was going on, Lori wouldn't tell him where she was, but that she was moving somewhere, somewhere cold, and that it was dangerous for her to tell anybody where she had gone. He even tried to contact her during Thanksgiving, but her phone was disconnected. And then he tells the jury this. At that time... Had you had cause to be concerned about Tylee Ryan? Yes. Uh, what gave what gave rise to that concern? My conversations over text with her. Okay. And what was it about your conversations in text with Tylee that gave you concern? When I first texted her, I had followed up with a few different phone calls and FaceTimes. And then the texts I was receiving back were just in different languages than how Tylee would type and talk and just the way she used her punctuation and things like that. You know, I think that one of the things I wanted to run by you, Melanie, with a lot of cults, a lot of religious leaders that have this charisma and this power over people, was it possible that Chad Daybell exercised some sort of mind control over Lori Vallow? You know, that was my thinking originally, too. I mean, from everything that I've read, her behavior didn't really start to change until she started becoming obsessed with his books. And so she became almost like a super fan of these doomsday books that he was writing and self-publishing. And, you know, 
the second he got into her life and then they met and then he told her they were married in a past life and they were meant to be together. There's a lot of talk about past lives and light and dark spirits and her telling people that certain people were already dead or they were going to die or they were meant to die or they were supposed to die. There could have been some sort of brainwashing here. We don't, we haven't heard about that yet. And it's definitely an interesting theory. Well, and, and a lot of these cults, you know, David Koresh, I think a lot of people have watched the uh, the Netflix special about that uh, when they you know took down the compound in Waco, Texas. And he had that power over his flock, I'd like to say. And Charles Manson, going back a lot of years, although that wasn't a religious cult, he had mind control over his followers, as well as, as Jim Jones, who forced hundreds of people to drink the Kool-Aid. That's where that expression comes from and basically forced his followers to commit suicide. So mind control is a real thing, especially in these religious cults. Phil, thoughts? Well, when you take a religious belief and you take people that maybe have uh, low self-esteem, personality disorder, and you introduce hallucinogenics, if you take those three components and you put them together... Mind control sounds like a walk in the park to me. So I don't know if uh, hallucinogenics were part of this particular case. I didn't read anything about that. But again, uh, somebody that has a personality disorder uh, might, you know, maybe, uh, you know, issues in their life, uh, marital issues, uh, self-esteem issues. You come to this, uh, this religious group and they're going to give you everything that you've been looking for in life, or so they say. You become a believer the mind control begins and they brainwash you basically. So, uh, you know, again, like you brought up about uh, uh, Jim Jones with, with the Kool-Aid. I mean, he got uh, uh, over a hundred people to commit suicide, a mass suicide. Again, uh, very, very powerful. And um, I don't know if she's putting on an act because she was deemed unfit for trial, fit for trial, now unfit for trial, now back on trial. Uh, maybe there's a component of it where she's playing it up, but I do believe that these were uh, these people were murderous. These were psychotic. Uh, they definitely, definitely uh, portrayed some very, very uh, violent behavior. Well, Melanie, you you could be mentally ill without being insane and without qualifying for the insanity plea. Isn't that correct? Well, yeah. As long, if you know what you're doing, you know, there's got, there, there's a lot of different tests here and there's, you know, the battle of the experts and it would come down to what the experts say. And then there would be a ruling on whether or not the person was competent, but she has been found to be incompetent. And then she was found competent and then she's incompetent again. So I don't really know what's going on with that. Cause I didn't do a deep dive into that part of the case. What, what surprised me was that the cases were severed. They were initially supposed to be tried together she and Chad, then the cases were severed and she's being tried first. Not sure why. If anybody has any information on that, they can certainly put it in the chat. You know, Melanie, I think that perhaps that could have been a ploy to maybe uh, get her get her convicted and perhaps maybe she'll testify 
against Chad. That's what I was thinking when I saw that too. The whole thing right. is very, very, very odd. And my understanding, now I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a doctor in any way, shape or form, but my understanding about whether or not a person is found to be competent, if you could live through daily life, drive a car, go to the store, clean yourself, different things of that nature, that usually indicates a person that is sane to my belief. I mean, obviously much deeper uh, examination is done by uh, court-appointed doctors to find if a person is sane or insane. But, uh, you know, to me, I mean, she didn't sound like she was mumbling to herself in a corner, completely filthy, hadn't washed in, uh, you know, maybe a month or so. So again, I, I don't know what the parameters are of a doctor's examination to see if a person is uh, you know, able to be held accountable for their actions. But uh, again, it sounds like there was some uh, disagreement whether or not she was uh, sane or insane. Just different. Okay. So was it fair to say you felt like it wasn't Tyler you were speaking with? Yes. So was it perhaps Lori pretending to be Tylee? That's something for the jury to consider. And here's something to think about. I've said this before. This is So they're going over his uh, testimony, and it's really riveting and powerful. But he you know, here's the son believing that she was involved in the disappearance. They all agree to oh, kill everyone. This. There's no real forensic physical evidence tying Lori to the killings. But what we have are strange comments, actions, questionable timeline of events that go towards things like consciousness of guilt, or they go towards its reasonable to perceive Lori as being responsible or involved in what happened. That's the big evidence here, which brings me now to the big bombshell. He was locked up in jail. And as you'll hear, he confronts his mother directly about the deaths of his siblings. You think you can hide from me? So he comes. So incredible, right? Incredible testimony. There's the yeah. son confronting the mother about his missing siblings, and he's not buying any of her crap. He, you know, he's confronting. And look, we, everyone that's in jail or in prison knows that all phone calls are recorded. So it's not like you can right. say anything that's off the record. Go ahead, Melanie. He was there, and, and I listened to the entire phone call today, and he was in prison talking to her on the phone so it wasn't like she called him from they were there and he says at one point why won't you look at me why won't you look at me and she just starts laughing like it, it was so bizarre and so psychotic the way she started laughing about the the death of, deaths of her children and she kept saying you weren't there you don't know what happened you don't know what caused this it was you have to listen to the whole phone call but it was really bizarre and just really heartbreaking to listen to 
Well, again, I think it's the mental illness component of this that, you know, she's, she's she went through five husbands. Is that a normal thing to go through five husbands? Look, I know there's Hollywood people and showbiz people that do it all the time, but but John Q. Citizen that is living a normal life isn't loaded with money. Going through five husbands, I find that to be a bit bizarre. That sounds like uh, instability, unable to hold down a relationship to me, obviously. And again, just because she could be uh, psychopathic, psychotic, doesn't mean that she's not capable of understanding what's going on and be held accountable for her actions. So again, I, I guess a deep dive was done by uh, some medical experts, obviously some disagreement. But uh, if you hear the tone of her voice, I mean, uh, Tylee was her daughter. That was her daughter. And uh, she either went along with or participated in the killing of her daughter. Now, the son obviously uh, adopted, but still uh, a child in her custody, in her care. So uh, definitely off the rails, in my opinion, this woman is. But uh, uh, again, I don't know. Uh, to me, I just feel like there might be some drug component in her past, maybe acid or some type of hallucinogenics, just, you know, played with the brain and uh, she was unable to, uh, you know, to, to lead a normal life. This is Law and Crime again reporting on this. Of her daughter, Tylee Ryan, and her adopted son, J.J. Vallow, and her husband, Chad's first wife, Tammy Daybell. Our very own Gigi McKelvey joins us now outside of the Ada County Courthouse. Gigi, uh, good afternoon. So I know that you've been out there. Uh, the weather's been fluctuating. The courtroom is crazy. This case is crazy. It's all nuts. You've been doing a great job covering it. Uh, but tell us, so far, what you're seeing in the courtroom today, what was the most compelling testimony you think was impactful for those jurors? By far, it was when Lori's sister, Summer Shiflett, was on the stand and they played a phone call between the two of them just a couple of weeks after the kids' bodies were found. Now, remember, in the very beginning, when the kids were still missing, Lori's sister went on TV and gave interviews saying that she trusted her sister and she would never hurt them. This call, very different. Lots of screaming, crying. And with Lori's sister, Summer, saying you threw your kids away like garbage while you're dancing on a beach in Hawaii. Yeah, and, and is that the same sister that she keeps turning to in the courtroom, or is this somebody else? No, this is her sister that's in the courtroom. She was here yesterday, I believe. Either uh, Summer's husband may be with her. There is a man with her. I've heard uncle could be uh, Lori's brother-in-law. I'm not sure. Lori very frequently looking over, trying to make some kind of a visual connection with Summer, raising her eyebrows, smiling very big when Summer was taking her oath to go on the stand. And uh, you, you can see Summer looking over at Lori some too, but I think obviously a lot of things have changed in the time since Lori's arrest back in February and certainly since they found the kids' bodies in June of 2020 in Chad Daybell's backyard. And Summer just made that very clear to Lori. We would have taken these kids. We would have loved them. You know, this didn't have to happen. And do you think so? So there you have it. I mean, it's really a, a, a crazy case where – you know, she had family that would have taken these kids, but they felt the need to, to murder these kids. And I think when we talk about the components being doomsday mother, was it craziness or mental illness? Was it about money? Was it about religion? What's your, what are your thoughts, Melanie? Was it psychosis? Um, you know, her brother, Alex Cox, was her patsy. This guy 
was the one who most likely did a lot of these murders and a lot of these crimes. I mean, if you go back to, to just to simplify the timeline a little bit in 2018, Tylee's father, who was Lori's third husband, Joseph Ryan dies of a heart attack. He was cremated. So when they reopened that case, after the children's bodies were found, they couldn't determine that he had died by anything other than uh, natural causes. Lori's fourth husband, Charles Vallow, who she was married to when she began her affair with Chad Daybell, was shot and killed by her brother, Alex Cox, who said it was self-defense because he said that Charles came after him with a baseball bat. Tylee apparently gave the police a similar version of events. As Phil said earlier, there had been a million-dollar life insurance policy on Charles, and Lori called the insurance company to try to cash in on that, and that's when she found out that the uh, beneficiary had been changed. Uh, Then Alex Cox's cell phone is pinging in Chad Daybell's backyard during the times when we believe that the children were murdered in September of 2019. And then he dies mysteriously, Alex Cox, in December of 2019. Dies suddenly of natural causes at age 51. They said there were blood clots in his lungs. There was also Narcan found in his system. So maybe, Phil, you've got something there with the drugs. Well, it sounds like Narcan Narcan is found into his system. That's obviously to uh, give an antidote for an overdose, you know, of of, uh, opioids. So again, uh, very strange. Uh, the whole thing is very strange. Uh, heart attack was what I read. Uh, blood clots and uh, hypertension. Where does the Narcan fit into that? Obviously, there was some drug use. You know, that's what it sounds like to me. What kind of mind control did she have over her brother to make him participate in her bidding? That's yeah, but Melanie, was was it was it him or was it Chad Daybell that had the mind control over the brother? That made him, it seemed like the brother was the hitman for these people. And I mean, of course, I don't buy the self-defense with uh with, with Charles, with Charles Vallow. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that was a clear murder. Even the police that responded to that crime scene had significant doubts over what had occurred, but it seemed like they, they, there was never a deep dive investigatively into these cases because. If they knew they were dealing with craziness and these these nutty people, they should have been very suspicious with every time they had any kind of police interaction. Bill, I think the uh, back in two thousand five, there was an incident between the brother and the, and the first husband, where the husband uh, tased him, or he t- there, there was some type of an incident previously. I think it was two thousand five. I was just looking through my notes now, but so perhaps uh, based on that, uh, that there was an incident before. He said now that he came at him uh, with a baseball bat and he shot him and killed him and they, and they closed the case. Obviously more investigation could have been done. Perhaps uh, it could have turned out differently had there been, but uh, this is just such a, uh, I don't think you could make this stuff up. This case is really, really unbelievable. Well, you know, truth is always uh, stranger than fiction because yes. I don't think writers can make stuff like this up, but Melanie, in this case, there's as potentially as many, as six murders in this case. There's six bodies for sure. 
And according to my notes on the timeline, Lori did not even meet Chad Daybell in person until October of 2018. So a lot of these things happened before that. So she was already spiraling with even without his influence. And maybe because she was so, I don't know, broken, uh, narcissistic, had all of these other personality disorder traits that when she came into contact with someone like him who thought he was a prophet uh, and made her feel important, it escalated her behavior to murdering her own children. You know, people are saying in the chat, I said that, uh, and I'm not trying to give Lori Vallow an out by calling it mental illness. It also could be called something else, evil. It could absolutely be called evilness. And again, I'm not trying to give someone an out by saying it's mental illness, but it could be. But there's also a potential that she's an evil person. Phil. Absolutely, abs absolutely, Billy. And I'm glad that you brought up the Manson case previously, mm -hmm. because if you look at the way her demeanor is in the courtroom and anytime she's uh, being observed, disconnected. She's showing me that she's disconnected, similar to way uh, Manson and the family were when they were in the courtroom, completely disconnected to what's going on. You're on trial for these murders and you know, you're just having a grand old time twiddling your thumbs and saying these off the wall things. And if you listen to the jailhouse conversation she had with her son, and if you look at her demeanor in the courtroom, again, very disconnected. So I think law, uh, Melanie is onto something that perhaps she had all of these person personality flaws that were you know, escalating over the years. And then once she got hooked into this religious cult, because it's definitely a cult, a doomsday cult, uh, things just accelerated. And um, they believed, it's, it's NBC reported, that they believed that both children were zombies and possessed. So again, uh, perhaps they convinced the brother Cox that uh, they, they were evil and they were possessed. And he took part in those murders. Of course, as we uh, just reported, uh, Melanie just said, the phone, his cell phone was pinging in and around the area where the bodies were found. So again, uh, very, very odd. And again, I think, Billy, you hit the nail right on the head. This is pure evil. Well, Lori is pure evil. <laughs> I don't know what all that other stuff means, but yeah, she absolutely, Lorraine Lawrence is pure evil. Yeah, she sits there with no affect. I mean, look, we're, we're only seeing sketches, right? Because um, there's no, no cameras in the court. But the, the video that I have seen of her, and she, she gave an interview after uh, Charles was killed to the police. I mean, there's video immediately after the killing and she's laughing and she's joking and she's, you know, you know, flirting with the cops kind of, you know, it's really, really bizarre behavior. She never even asks about the condition of her husband. It's just, it's very strange. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you like real crime stories from a police perspective, then you're in the right place. If you're not subscribed to us, go on our YouTube. Hit that subscribe button. Give us a thumbs up and ring that bell. Make comments. We love hearing your comments, and we love answering them. If you want to support us financially, we have a Patreon with three different levels, and we also have a YouTube channel membership with five different levels, and you see the folks in the green font. They're part of our YouTube family. They're our friends, our subscribers, our fans. And we appreciate all the support they give to us. Yeah, this, this is definitely one of the most bizarre cases we've seen. And 
when you someone had asked me, are these people serial killers? And the answer is absolutely they are. Two separate incidents, murder incidents with time in between makes you a serial killer. So, yeah, they are serial killers. Whether they can pin all of the, the separate incidents of murder on, for example, Chad Daybell to make him a serial killer, that remains to be seen. But we have at least six bodies here. That now, if they, if they can connect the dots and, you know, say, yeah, they're serial killers. He's responsible for this. He's responsible for that. Whether they can do that right now, we don't know. There's some, there was some testimony this week about some electronic evidence that they found, which was very interesting. Google searches that Chad Daybell made, for example. Um, September 8th of 2019 was the day that Tylee was last seen alive. On that day, Chad had a Google search history for, he wanted to know the wind direction for the next day. The next hmm. day, September 9th, which is the day that we believe Tylee was killed, Chad Daybell texts Tammy, his wife at the time, and says that he killed a raccoon in the backyard and he buried it in the pet cemetery. And that's the day that Alex's Cox cell phone pinged in the backyard. And here's a picture on the screen of uh, the backyard and the graves uh, that they dug up of the children. Folks, if you're not watching this, you're only listening to it. It's showing the grave sites of the children that were killed by uh, Chad Daybell and no doubt assisted by Alex Cox, or could be that Alex Cox killed the children. And they, uh, Chad Daybell apparently had been a grave digger, you know, how convenient uh, of, of, of a profession for doing what, what he was now doing. So well, the dots are being connected. Yeah. I mean, there's more, it goes on. You, you know, Bill, I wanted to just piggyback what Melanie said earlier. When uh, they were in uh, Hawaii, there was an inside edition camera crew that went and confronted them. And they, first they followed them a little bit and they, you saw them on the beach and you saw them at uh, a Publix or a, a supermarket buying stuff. I mean, she knew that the children were dead. Her own daughter and her adopted son were dead, all of this craziness. And they were just having a good old time in Hawaii. So again, very disconnected from reality is the picture that I'm seeing being painted. Absolutely. I want to play a little bit more of the Lauren crime interview. But with Lori, you see her almost desperately wanting to make some kind of a connection with her sister. And I kind of don't get the feeling that's that's mutual with Summer. Yeah, Gigi, also talk to us a little bit about the courtroom dynamic. I mean, we've been covering trials in the last couple of months where lawyers are at each other's throats or the judge. How, how is the general professionalism of the court? And, and is it uh, is it in control? And is each side being allowed to do what it is that they need to do? Or do they uh, or do you get a, a sense that there's acrimony amongst the parties? It's running like a well-oiled machine in there. There's not a lot of back and forth. There's been some sidebars, but nobody comes back looking mad. They're handling the disagreements they have and finding solutions. I think that the judge has handled the courtroom very well. The bailiffs are great. So, I mean, right now, the focus 
100% is on this testimony and the facts of the case that this jury will need to decide her fate. Uh, Gigi, we've also been talking about some legal issues, and, and, and I, I know that the judge has not charged the case, but uh, we know that the state does not have a quote-unquote self, def um, rather insanity defense, but nevertheless, you can introduce evidence that goes to the mens rea or mental state of that defendant. Uh, I don't think any of that's coming in from what I understand because there was nothing provided by the defense attorneys in a timely fashion. Do I have that right? You do have that right. And uh, according to one of the hearings in the past before trial, Mr. Archibald said she did not want to bring mental illness in as a defense. So in, in my opinion, they've kind of got some hands tied behind their back. They're newer to this case. Remember, she had Mark Means on her case for uh, over a year, year and a half. And then once she was deemed incompetent and went away to the Department of Health and Welfare, when she got out, Mark Means was removed for a conflict of interest and then Jim Archibald and John Thomas put on. So with the amount of discovery in this case and the fact that she doesn't want to use mental health as a defense, I think that they definitely have an uphill battle in convincing this jury that she knew nothing and wasn't involved. Yeah, Gigi, I want to... You know, Melanie, you had brought up the, uh, the uh, fact that in two prior cases, she had been found mentally incompetent to stand trial, uh, two prior occurrences. And in this case, Judge Boyce ruled that she was, in fact, competent to stand trial. You want to comment on that? And Well, and now she doesn't even want to bring up mental illness as a defense. She's so narcissistic that she doesn't want anybody to even think that she could possibly mental, be mentally ill. So I don't have the reports and I'm not sure why she was, you know, deemed incompetent. Maybe it was, it was uh, decided that she couldn't participate in her own defense, that she didn't understand the charges against her. But really you could make the argument that anybody who commits these kinds of, of crimes is completely uh, insane because no sane person would commit crimes like this. No sane person would kill their own children or conspire to kill their own children. Well, that's absolutely true. However, I think the standard is that the person understands right from wrong. Does Lori mm -hmm. Vallow understand right from wrong? Can she participate in her defense? Well, what do you think? I think she's doing a fine job. She's made, she's trying to make a connection with her sister. I mean, I think they, she's been deemed competent to stand trial and she seems perfectly competent. I don't think that that's going to be any sort of appellate issue or anything like that. If that's what you're thinking, but I mean, how narcissistic that she's looking over at her sister, trying to smile at her and make a connection and, you know, be all friendly. And it's just bizarre behavior, but bizarre. narcissism is a, is a really prevalent disorder nowadays. And she seems to be the queen of it. You know, it, it does, I guess to a lot of people, um, even in the news, Besides, of course, all the murders that brings this makes brings this to everyone's attention. There's also this, you know, the sex part of it, you know, the affair while she's married with this religious leader. And I think that attracts perhaps the media to this case. You know, they would probably refer to this as a sexy case. But it, it the murders sort of, you know, make all of that stuff go away and, and just... It's a horrible case. It's, you know, that's what I'm trying to say is that she took part in killing her children. Her her husband, uh, Chad Daybell's wife, they were all involved in this. It's, you know, uh, 
What a tangled web we weave when we choose to deceive, as Alec Murdoch said. Phil. <laughs> yeah, I mean, listen, I'm sure that there's a lot of salacious details that we're not privy to at this point. Uh, again, like you said, I think the, uh, the, the murders of young children trumps everything else. Uh, then we're finding out about the murders of, you know, the, the, the wife of, of Chad and all the different things and the brother and all, all the craziness that's going on. But uh, it's just, um, again, I'm going to go back to it. It sounds like she's so disconnected from reality. I don't know if it's an act, but uh, to try and, you know, uh, smile at her sister that's apparently not in her camp, you know, a sister that testified against her. And again, I think they're probably very angry that uh, uh, the boy, JJ, was, was autistic, I believe. And the young 16-year-old girl, a seven-year-old boy, uh, the family probably love these kids and, and they're probably infuriated with the fact that uh, they're no longer with us. So uh, for her to be smiling at her sister, again, really signs of, uh, you know, being out there to me. Melanie, in your opinion as an attorney, how is the defense for Lori Vallow and what would you do differently if you were representing her? Mm. I didn't just put you on the spot, did I? Well, they, 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 it's not their turn yet. They haven't presented their case yet. So we're going to have to wait and see. But what, what do you think, Laura? If you, if you like, I, I don't want to put you on the spot either, but if you yeah. had a defender, I had a I mean, client like this, I mean, yeah, what, so what, what, what type of, uh, you know, what position would you take? I mean, it's difficult, I would try huh? and convince her that you have to go, go with some sort insanity. of mental illness. Yeah. That's what defense think, to at least, yeah. you know, lessen the charges. I mean, look, it's clear. The kids are killed in September. Tammy is uh, killed in October. On the day of Tammy's funeral, Lori is Google searching wedding dresses in Hawaii. They go to <laughs> Hawaii and get married two weeks later where they tell everybody that they're empty nesters. Frolicking on the beach. Yeah. Right, Maybe. she has no children. She, uh, there's no children to be yeah, concerned Yeah, they have with. no children. And, you know, there was some testimony from another one of her friends who said that uh, that Lori tried to recruit her into this cult and but told her, but when you come with us, because we, we want you to be one of the 144,000 followers, you have to leave your children behind. Just leave them with their father because you, you've done what you, you know, your, your job is done with them. You just need to come with us and be part of our, our group. K.H. Walker, Charles Vallow begged the Chandler, Arizona police to lock Lori up. She that's was threatening correct. to kill him then. You know, that's what, one of the things I said. And thank you, K.H. Walker, for that comment. But that's what I was saying before is that there has to be a mechanism in this country whereby police can communicate with each other in a more uh, sophisticated way than they actually do now. Because this, of course across state lines, across jurisdictions, and were the police talking to each other enough to, you know, have a heads up and to, to have red flags about Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell? You know, six bodies connected to them over, over years. But however, it doesn't seem, and I'm not criticizing any one police department, I'm criticizing the system. And in addition, we've spoken before and if you guys, I know a lot of you guys watch Duty Ron's show and you've heard Barbara Butcher rail against the coroner system across this country. And the coroner was the one who decided that um, the wife of um, Chad Daybell didn't need an autopsy. You know, 
in his or her opinion, it wasn't suspicious. So they were ready. They did bury her without an autopsy. And the thing was, as Melanie said before, had Chad Daybell had her, um, uh, whatchamacallit, the, um, not buried, had her, uh, I cremated. can't think of the word, cremated, cremated, had her cremated, there would be no evidence. They yeah. wouldn't have been able to do an autopsy. So Billy, can I, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. I was going to make a comment on uh, K.H. Walker's comment. Uh, Charles Vallow begged the police in Arizona to arrest Lori, but you got to put the whole thing into contents. Now, you and I both know when we have domestic violence cases, she takes off with somebody. She's gone for 58 days. He comes in. He says, oh, she's threatening to kill me, this and that. I mean, I get it. Uh, order protection is in place. If she violates the order, then there's an arrest. I don't think there was enough to make an arrest just based on her taking off and making verbal threats. You know what I'm trying to say? So again, these ca cases are very, very delicate. Uh, you know, you really have to look at them good. Uh, domestic violence cases can turn on, on, on a dime. You know, it can go from a simple aggravated harassment to a, you know, a person being stabbed to death uh, multiple times very, very quickly. But uh, again, when you look at it from the outside, he could be, you know, uh, his wife left him and he's crying wolf, so to speak, you know. So, again, they should have uh, obviously looked into it. But I don't think there was enough just based on him getting an order of protection to make arrests. Now, if she violated the order, obviously, then there could have been uh, an arrest made. But I think you, you hit a good spot when you're talking about uh, having uh, jurisdictional communication between states. Maybe uh, through the whole United States, there should be some type of a... Uh, 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 you know, where you have uh, something that you can check on. Can't think of a word offhand. Uh, you know, well, uh, Phil, what there is between police departments is teletype messages. But yeah, look, the FBI has offices in every state in the United States. So, of course, the FBI communicates a lot quicker and a lot better, right, with fellow agents. But the police service doesn't have that same level of communication where they can get someone on the phone and, you know, implore them to how important or how dangerous this situation is and get them to do something, you know, a federal uh, database. That's what I was getting at. If you had a federal database where anytime there's a, uh, order protection put in place, no matter where it is in the country, and it goes into that database. Now a detective gets a report. He can go into that database and say, wait, there's a active order protection in another state. Now maybe you're going to take it one step further, look into it a little further. Obviously these are things that need to be looked at. And we go through this so many times with these domestic violence cases too. I mean, we've done many, many shows on that type of stuff. So again, just one other thing, yeah, you know, the tool that you can throw into the toolbox, perhaps a federal database. Mary Michael, that news clip of Charles Vallow begging the police for help with her is just so frustrating and heartbreaking. Absolutely, because he wound up dead, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, February of 2019 was when he was filing for divorcing that he feared for the safety of his children and himself, that she had said that she was going to kill him, that she was a god. And by July, he was killed by her brother. So not much time has passed. She also told people that in, when they when she was in Hawaii, she told one of the other followers of this uh, this cult, if we're calling it a cult, uh, that Charles is already dead and that there was a demon living inside of him and that the name of the demon was Ned Snyder. And she said, well, how do you know that there's a demon inside of him? And she said, well, he's shorter and he's possessed. He's acting differently. Wow. That's, you know, there's the mental illness component. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Let me play a little bit more of Law and Crime interview here. <laughs> 
want to pin that down a little bit because, uh, again, are you saying that the judge would not permit it because it was out of time or the client refuses to go with the mental health defense? Do you know? My understanding is that Lori did not want to bring mental health in as a defense. It was not the judge. The, the deadline passed, but that was raised in court by her defense attorneys that she was not intending on using that as a defense in her case. Well, I, I would imagine, I, I'm not sure if you were there when that happened, but the defense attorneys are essentially probably putting that on the record in order to cover themselves from a malpractice action down the road that they saw a viable legal defense. Now, this is a person, as you note, who was declared incompetent to stand trial. And while that's not an insanity and or does not necessarily diminish mental capacity at the time of the incident, uh, do you suspect that that's the lawyer's Again, fr freezing up, guys. Right. So, yeah, as you can see, you know, the defense, Melanie, we spoke about the mental disease defect. Apparently, there's not an insanity plea in Idaho. So I don't know how right. that affects We, we learned about that in Coburger. Yes. Yeah. So it's, uh, I don't do know what a, a mental disease or defect defense would do. Well, she, uh, if she was... Well, she, if she was found guilty uh, by re, uh, means of insanity, she'd be placed in a psychiatric facility as opposed to a jail. I know that that would probably be one thing. But uh, again, if she's found incompetent to stand trial and remanded to a psychiatric facility, I guess the state, uh, whatever the guidelines are in the state statutes, I guess that's how they would uh, determine what would happen if, if she is found to be uh, incompetent to stand trial. I, I think they're going to argue that um, Alex... Cox acted on his own, that she had nothing to do with it, that at the time all of these murders took place, she wasn't there. I think that's what they're going to try to use to cause uh, to shed some reasonable doubt. I think her behavior in the courtroom can also wind up getting her conv convicted because I think, you know, innocent people don't behave the way she behaves. You know, it's so hard to judge someone's behavior. You never know how you're going to act in a certain situation, right? So I hate to do that because it's like, oh, if your kids disappeared, you would, you know, you'd behave a certain way and you wouldn't behave a certain way. I think her behavior is bizarre. I don't know how the jury is uh, observing that or how they're taking it. Right. Or if anybody has reported on the jury crying like we've seen in other cases. A, a good barometer for that would be uh, when the medical examiner discusses the manner and cause of death what her, uh, you know, her reactions would be. I mean, and the photographs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, graphic photographs. Any, any normal mother would be inconsolable at that point, wouldn't you say? And I yeah. don't know if that's going to be the case with, with, uh, with this one. But uh, again, that's uh, the jury is going to probably be able to uh, draw conclusions based on her appearance and her demeanor in court. And I think that that's fair. That's, that's, that's fair in my mind, you know? I mean, you have somebody that is normal and rational, rational thinking, and you have somebody that's appears to be not normal and rational thinking, you know? So yeah. a person, the jurors, you would consist of, of normal people. You would, you know, you would label them as being normal, everyday people. And if sh her actions or her demeanor is out there, I think they're going to pick on that, pick up on that very quickly. You sure. Know? I like to say jurors don't leave their common sense at the door. You know, they come no, in with their own not. life experiences and their own common sense. And that's what, that's what they use to make their determination. And uh, it, it's going to be observations. Do you think she's going to testify? 
Wow, I could not see her testifying at all. That would be a real circus. That would be a real circus. But I think that most jurors, I would venture to say 99.9% .9 of jurors, especially on a case that's as high profile as this, are going to take this real seriously. And I think that they're going to look at every piece of evidence. They're going to be glued to uh, every word that's being said from the witnesses that are uh, making statements, the cross-examination, you know, uh, the, the prosecutions, uh, whatever they're putting forward, they're going to take it seriously. And, and you know, hopefully they'll come to uh, the right decision in this case. You know, I think even when your family testifies against you, that's a pretty bad sign. You know, it's uh, very powerful in the eyes of the jury. Good point, Billy. Yeah, Good point. For sure. And, Bill, and when you... I, go ahead. Go Joe ahead. Murray, attorney at law. Uh, listen, guys, uh, we have Joe Murray as a uh, very big supporter of police off the cuff, real crime stories. He is a terrific criminal defense attorney in the New York area. You could reach Joe at his website, jmurray-law.com. Joe is not only a defense attorney, a criminal defense attorney, he's also a retired member of the NYPD. He had 15 years delivering that knockout punch uh, on different cases that he's worked on recently. If you have need to... Uh, Contact Joe for legal services. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you can email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. He really is a terrific criminal defense attorney, and he happens to be a great guy and a big supporter of our show, Police Off the Cuff. You know, Melanie, one of the things I thought of is that uh, they took the death penalty off the table in regards to Lori Vallow, but they kept it in regards to Chad Daybell. Is there a possibility, although she's taken this right through trial, that that was a deal cut for her to testify against Chad Daybell? Uh, the excuse given for taking the death penalty off the table was that the defense argued that they had been presented with so many, so um, a mountain of evidence, and they didn't have enough time to go through all of the evidence to have them properly prepare for a death penalty case. And that's why the death penalty was taken off the table for her. Well, I was thinking that it would be a deal cut for her to testify against him in the event she's found guilty and to not get the death penalty. They haven't said anything about that. That's the reason that was given for taking the death penalty off the table for her. Well, I believe you, Melanie. That's <laughs> I'm not questioning right. your veracity. In my deep dive <laughs> today. <laughs> you know, there's also, she also asked her friend to lie to the police. That's another yeah. thing. I mean, yeah. the circumstantial evidence, there's a ton of it, you know. Uh, she asked her friend to lie to the police when um, JJ's grandparents had asked for a wellness check because they hadn't heard from JJ in a really long time. And so uh, I think... So she called her friend and said, listen, the police are going to be calling you. Just tell them that, that JJ's with you in Utah and tell them that you took him to see the movie Frozen. And by the way, could you go to the theater and take a couple of pictures of just random kids around so you have something on your phone? Unbelievable. Mary Michael, her family is testifying against her and she's sitting there smiling and smirking. What's wrong with this picture? There's obviously... You know, we talk about the doomsday mother. Did she really buy into this religious cult? Or is she mentally ill or is she evil? Which one? You have a or choice of, of three or all of them, a combination of all three. You know, these are the things that, you know, the jury's going to have to decide. And the defense is, of course, trying to create doubt that she had any involvement in this whatsoever. But there's plenty of circumstantial evidence. 
that in fact she was involved in this. Uh, Bill, like Melanie was told, Melanie, you were just bringing up uh, her friend. That's Melanie Gibb Correct. that denied that she was, uh, that the, uh, JJ was with her. And she was also with Lori when she met Chad, when they had gone to that, uh, that uh, book thing. And uh, so again, maybe she was part of this religious belief and cult as well. However, she wasn't going to have any part of covering up for a missing seven-year-old child. Thank God that she had the, uh, the brains uh, to uh, to cooperate with the police and and you know contact them and let them know that she had uh, you know they contacted her to to corroborate the story that Lori had told them and then she contacted them back saying you know she called me and asked me to lie so I'm glad that she came forward I'm sure she'll be uh, testifying if she hasn't testified already uh, she did testify that's where I got that okay. from also Alex Cox's wife testified she had only been his wife for two weeks before he was killed before he died. <laughs> And she was testifying about visions and dark and light spirits and past lives. And, you know, it, it, it's all going to come down to the credibility that the jury, uh, you know, puts on these people. I mean, they may think, you know, these people are a little bit wacky. Like, I don't know if I believe anything that they say. So, you know, you listen to the testimony and you can hear this affect in some of the people who are also the followers. And the jury might construe that as just being like, they're all a little bit, something's off about everybody. I don't know who to believe. I, I think know. that, I think that's a good point, Melanie, because if someone gets on the stand with very, very sensitive uh, evidence, basically saying that uh, I was asked to lie, but now uh, if the defense attorney cross-examines her and says, well, do you believe in spirits? Do you believe that doomsday is coming? And she starts to get into it. That could ruin her credibility right there. So that's a good point that you brought up, Melanie. Yeah. You know, how well, you know, do you interpret all of that? No, but I mean, we've seen this in other religions too. It's not just one specific religion mm -hmm. that has some of this crazy cult, uh, cultness to the religion where they get people to do things that are really outrageous, you know? And just falling behind some of these religious leaders that, you know, the, their followers would walk into a fire for them, it seems, you know, and that's, is that mental illness? Is that just the leader mind, you know, mind controlling some of the, his flock or her flock? What is it, you know? And uh, I, again, not to point out any specific religions, but we've seen this a lot of times in many different religions. Yes, we have. And we should we should get a, uh, you know, a cult expert on the show, because I would love to know more about the cult mentality. And, you know, I, I think, you know, they target certain kinds of people, right, to yes. be part of this cult, they have to mm -hmm. have certain uh, traits that that is going to are going to make them follow really without question. And, you know, people who are looking for something and meaning in their lives. And, you know, we've seen this in the um, a lot of these cases with the women, what was the one uh, in upstate New York? It was like a cult where he was branding them Keith Rainier, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there are certain people that are targeted by these cult leaders because they're easy targets. And when you think about it, if someone has uh, personal issues, let's say marital or drug issues, they turn to their whatever, if it's a church or some type of uh, religious organization, now they're, uh, they're at a weakened point in their life, probably very vulnerable and easy to, uh, you know, to, 
you know, get them to, to commit to the religion. Don't worry, we have the path. God is going to save you or whatever the, the religion that they're, uh, they're going to spout or they're going to, you know, try to get the person to believe in. So if you have a vulnerable person, uh, you know, obviously maybe with some personal issues uh, and you're going to save the day for them. And, you know, you maybe you talk a little common sense to them, but you need to come in and you need to give a third of your salary to our organization, to our church or whatever it is, uh, you know, religious group. A lot of times those things happen where it doesn't turn into a murderous organization, but they get people, that's how they, they will, uh, you know, get people to come into, uh, into their religion or their cult, so to speak. So again, and again, I, I've seen many times where uh, these, uh, you know, you, you have religions and you have cults that they'll use narcotics and they'll use Santeria and all these other different things. So it's something to be concerned about. And, uh, you know, it's not a joke. Obviously, this led to some horrible, horrible circumstances. I mean, all these people, these two young children killed. So, again, uh, not anything to uh, to laugh about. But Melanie, I think you hit it on the head with um People that go into these cults, they have a weakness in their personality. They have a weakness uh, because of alcohol, drugs, a mental illness. And that's who religions prey upon. And they get the weakest individuals. They target them. And these people will do. And I think the religion keeps them walking a straight line for some reason. You know, of course, they preach no alcohol, no drugs. But some of these people had huge histories of alcohol and drugs and potentially mental illness and or problems in their past, criminality perhaps. So yes, that's who some of these religions target. And I would say it's the weaker individuals among us that would become susceptible to joining like a cult. Or people who are looking for acceptance or who are looking for love or just, you know, a, a sense of belonging or, you know, any of that stuff, right? I, I saved Phil from a cult, you the did. cannoli, the cannoli cult. <laughs> Billy, I, had Billy, throw, Billy. I had to throw a joke in there. It was getting a little dry. So folks, <laughs> uh, this is a, a, a tremendously complicated case. Uh, it's one of those cases, almost like the Alec Murdoch case. Would you believe this? Do you believe this? And we say it a million times. Truth is much stranger than fiction. Uh, Melanie, I'm going to go to you first. Your final thoughts. There's so much more to this case. I feel like I said that about every case, but really we have not even mm -mm. scratched the surface. We could do hours and hours and hours on this case. And I feel like we didn't even scratch the surface, but I feel like there's definitely something wrong with this picture. <laughs> That's and, for sure. you know, I, I don't see how she's going to get out of it. The, the circumstantial evidence just keeps piling on and piling on and piling on. And, and the wake of bodies and mysterious occurrences that have followed this woman around uh, for her life are, are just there's too many of them to disregard. Absolutely. Phil, your final thoughts. My final thoughts are Pandora's box was opened with these two, uh, Lori Vallow, Daybell, and Chad Daybell. Once Tylee, Ashlyn Ryan, 16 years old, and J.J. Vallow, uh, seven years old, were reported missing and then later found dead. Uh, keep these poor young children in your prayers, their souls. Uh, pray for them. And all the other victims of these, uh, these two maniacs, they're definitely maniacs. And uh, I think uh, Melanie said it best. I mean, we I looked at the uh, timeline on this case. 
I had I printed out four pages of timeline. I mean, it's just it's it's incredible how many twists and turns there are in this case, and how many facts and circumstances that are. Uh, I printed out ten pages of uh, just notes and stuff. So again, a lot to be uh, deciphered, uh, examined, and uh, looked at here. And for our fans, uh, if you have the time and you want to, uh, you're interested in this stuff, obviously take a look at it. But it's it's quite confusing and uh, it's quite interesting at the same time. Absolutely. Folks, thank you so much. This is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. Thanks for tuning in tonight. Have a great night and be safe. Stay safe, everyone. Right. One episode just ain't enough.